Gracious and loving God, thank you for bringing us safely to a new week. Thank you for the St. Michael's community and for this Bible study. And so today, as we study your holy word, we ask for an abundance of grace and insight that our conversation would lead towards a changed understanding, a renewed heart, and a different way of living in the world. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. From the wilderness of sin, the whole congregation of the Israelites journeyed by stages as the Lord commanded. They camped at Rephidim, but there was no water for the people to drink. The people quarreled with Moses and said, give us water to drink. Moses said to them, why do you quarrel with me? Why do you test the Lord? But the people thirsted there for water and the people complained against Moses and said, why did you bring us out of Egypt to kill us and our children and livestock with thirst? So Moses cried out to the Lord, what shall I do with this people? They are almost ready to stone me. The Lord said to Moses, go on ahead of the people and take some of the elders of Israel with you. Take in your hand the staff with which you struck the Nile and go. I will be standing there in front of you on the rock at Horeb. Strike the rock and water will come out of it so that the people may drink. Moses did so in the sight of the elders of Israel. He called the place Massa and Meribah because the Israelites quarreled and tested the Lord saying, is the Lord among us or not? Then Amalek came and fought with Israel at Rephidim. Moses said to Joshua, choose some men for us and go out, fight with Amalek. Tomorrow I will stand on the top of the hill with the staff of God in my hand. So Joshua did as Moses told him and fought with Amalek while Moses, Aaron, and Hur went up to the top of the hill. Whenever Moses held up his hand, Israel prevailed. And whenever he lowered his hand, Amalek prevailed. But Moses' hands grew weary. So they took a stone and put it under him and he sat on it. Aaron and Hur held up his hands, one on one side and the other on the other side. So his hands were steady until the sun set. And Joshua defeated Amalek and his people with the sword. Then the Lord said to Moses, write this as a reminder in a book and recite it in the hearing of Joshua. I will utterly blot out the remembrance of Amalek from under heaven. And Moses built an altar and called it, the Lord is my banner. He said, a hand upon the banner of the Lord. The Lord will have war with Amalek from generation to generation. Jethro, the priest of Midian, Moses's father-in-law, heard of all that God had done for Moses and for his people Israel, how the Lord had brought Israel out of Egypt. After Moses had sent away his wife, Zipporah, his father-in-law, Jethro, took her back along with her two sons. The name of the one was Gershom, for he said, I have been an alien in a foreign land. And the name of the other, Eliezer, for he said, the God of my father was my help and delivered me from the sword of Pharaoh. Jethro, Moses' father-in-law, came into the wilderness where Moses was encamped at the mountain of God, bringing Moses' sons and wife to him. He sent word to Moses, 
I, your father-in-law Jethro, am coming to you with your wife and her two sons. Moses went out to meet his father-in-law. He bowed down and kissed him. Each asked after the other's welfare, and they went into the tent. Then Moses told his father-in-law all that the Lord had done to Pharaoh and to the Egyptians for Israel's sake, all the hardship that had beset them on the way and how the Lord had delivered them. Jethro rejoiced for all the good that the Lord had done to Israel in delivering them from the Egyptians. Jethro said, blessed be the Lord who has delivered you from the Egyptians and from Pharaoh. Now I know that the Lord is greater than all gods because he has delivered the people from the Egyptians when they dealt arrogantly with them. And Jethro, Moses' father-in-law, brought a burnt offering and sacrifices to God. And Aaron came with all the elders of Israel to eat bread with Moses' father-in-law in the presence of God. The next day, Moses sat as judge for the people, while the people stood around him from morning until evening. When Moses' father-in-law saw all that he was doing for the people, he said, What is this that you are doing for the people? Why do you sit alone while all the people stand around you from morning until evening? Moses said to his father-in-law, because the people come to me to inquire of God. When they have a dispute, they come to me, and I decide between one person and another, and I make known to them the statutes and instructions of God. Moses' father-in-law said to him, what you are doing is not good. You will surely wear yourself out, both you and these people with you, for the task is too heavy for you. You cannot do it alone. Now listen to me, I will give you counsel and God be with you. You should represent the people before God and you should bring their cases before God. Teach them the statutes and instructions and make known to them the way they are to go and the things they are to do. You should also look for able men among all the people, men who fear God are trustworthy and hate dishonest gain. Such such men over them as officers over thousands, hundreds, fifties, and tens. Let them sit as judges for the people at all times. Let them bring every important case to you, but decide every minor case themselves. So it will be easier for you, and they will bear the burden with you. If you do this, and God so commands you, then you will be able to endure, and all these people will go to their home in peace. So Moses listened to his father-in-law and did all that he had said. All right. Thank you. Great reading of Exodus 17 and 18, which starts out with the whole congregation of Israel journeying as the Lord commanded. A better translation of the Hebrew is by the Lord's direction. So the Lord is directing them. And that's really important because when the Lord directs in scripture, the Lord also provides. And whether or not the Lord will provide what God's people needs, uh, that's going to be a big theme of Exodus 17, because whenever the people realize that they have no water, they begin to quarrel with Moses. And this quarreling we've seen before, whenever there was no bread and God rains down manna from heaven, and now they quarrel with Moses saying, give us water to drink. And 
It's interesting. They tell Moses to give them water. And we've already heard one of God's names in scripture is the Lord provides. Uh, and so only the Lord will be able to give them water, which is why Moses says, why are you quarreling with me? Um, but the people complain, and this is going to be part of their experience in the wilderness. They're going to murmur. They're going to complain. They're going to quarrel. They're not going to trust. And they ask Moses, why did you bring us out of Egypt to kill us and our children with thirst? But of course, this is less a question than it is an accusation. And ultimately, it is an accusation against God. And I think we talked about that last week, how whenever they were asking about manna um, and, and Moses said to them, it's not you know me that you're complaining uh, to. It, it's ultimately the Lord you have a complaint with. And how anytime we are complaining, that complaint at root is always one way or another against God. And there is a reliving, in a sense, of the story of Genesis 3, um, where the people are tested and they fail that test the same way Adam and Eve were tested. And they fail it really on the same grounds that Adam and Eve failed it. Because whenever that limit was placed in the Garden of Eden to basically do as you please, but don't eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, what the snake told them was some version of God isn't good. God does not have your best interest at heart. Otherwise, God never would have given you this limit. God's not interested in you. God doesn't care about you. I mean, how else do you explain the fact that he's not going to let you eat from this tree? That's basically what the snake suggested. And a similar thought is creeping into the minds of the Israelites. Is God good? You know, why did God bring us out into this wilderness? Did he do that to kill us? Which is ironic, right? Because God's intent is the exact opposite. It's salvation. God is saving them from oppression and leading them to the promised land. And yet they still wonder about whether or not God is among them, right? They quarreled and tested the Lord saying, is the Lord among us? And if the Lord is among us, is God good? Why did he bring us here? Did he bring us here just to kill us? And so we have an unflattering picture not just of the Israelites, but of human nature, where God saves us and we find ourselves in a wilderness where God seeks to provide for us. Granted, the wilderness is hard, but we basically have two thoughts that always lead to us taking matters into our own hands, and that never goes well. And one thought is, is the Lord among us or not? Does God really exist? Is God really here? Does God really care? Is God really present? Is the Lord among us? And then the other question that we ask, usually subconsciously, because it's a painful question to consciously ask, is God good? Or does God have evil intentions? Because really what they're suggesting is that God has evil intentions, that God brought them to the wilderness to kill them. And whenever there's a mass shooting, whenever there's a war that goes on and on and on, whenever there's a pandemic that kills several million people, there's always a part of our heart that asks, is the Lord among us and is the Lord good? And so I want you to get present to those questions in your own heart because 
they're at the heart of what it means to wrestle with the gremlins in the wilderness. And we fast forward a little bit to Jesus's ministry, which began not with 40 years in the wilderness, but with 40 days in the wilderness. And of course, Jesus was faithful for those 40 days, which is meant to be held in contradistinction to the 40 years of unfaithfulness of the Israelites. But those were really the questions that the devil with his three temptations, you know, turn stones into bread, throw yourself from the temple. Um, those temptations were meant to evoke those questions. Is the Lord here in your life and is the Lord good? Um, and yet Jesus was faithful in his time in the wilderness as he asked those questions. So back to our story of the Israelites, they're quarreling, they're not trusting, they're ready to stone Moses. And on top of it all, you have an enemy called Amalek that comes to fight with Israel. And we had a wonderful discussion about this on Sunday. I'm going to be curious to know what this group thinks about whether or not Moses and Joshua and the Israelites were acting faithfully and fighting with Amalek. Here's why I say that. Uh, we recall what God told the Israelites when they left Egypt. God said, stand still, do nothing, and I will fight for you. All you have to do is look and you will see your enemies scattered, right? That is some version of what God told them with respect to Israel. Uh, with respect to food and water, God said the same thing. Stand still, I will send manna. Stand still, I will give you water. Right. So everything in Exodus to this point has been God telling them, don't do anything. Let me scatter your enemies and let me send the bread. And so here comes an enemy. And we've been told that the Lord is testing them. And so a question is, is the test whether or not they will stand still and watch the Lord's deliverance? You know, E.B. made a, a really wonderful point on Sunday that the other side of the story is that God wants us to take initiative and that an army is coming. And if an army comes, you got to fight back. And I think there's some validity to that worldview, especially whenever we see the battle depicted in Exodus as a spiritual battle, right? One that Paul speaks of in Ephesians 6 when he says, our struggle is not against flesh and blood. And so certainly... We need to actively fight against the forces of evil in society and in our hearts. But to go back to the text, God never tells Moses to form an army. And this is going to be an important theme later on in Scripture when the people want a king and to Samuel's great sorrow and God's great disappointment, the people demand a military king, Saul, uh, because they want to be like the other nations. They want to have a mighty military and they want some legitimacy uh, as they deal with the other nations of the world. And so God gives in and Saul, David, and everyone that follows is an utter disaster. And so Moses tells Joshua, build an army and go fight. Choose some men and go fight. And I just want to note that God does not give those instructions. Now, after Moses takes that initiative, God is clearly with them. And we see Joshua coming into prominence, right? So uh, after Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, um, Deuteronomy, uh, and Numbers, we have 
or uh, Numbers and Deuteronomy, we have Joshua. We have a book named after this man who uh, leads the conquest and is a great military ruler. And this is Joshua's kind of first time to to get some street cred. Um, but God is with them. And um, Moses stands on top of the hill with the staff of God in his hand. And whenever uh, Moses holds his hands up, Israel wins. Whenever his hand gets tired, Amalek wins. And so Aaron and Hur basically help him hold up his hands to secure the victory. And so this speaks to God being with his people in their battle. And it also speaks to the power of community prayer and intercession. Basically, when Moses is praying, the battle is being won. And we can see deep symbolic value as we think about the battles we face, the battles in society, the battles with um, our emotions, the battle with our defects. I mean, we have lots of battles we fight. Um, and then the Lord tells Moses that he will utterly blot out the remembrance of Amalek uh, from generation to generation. And to have one's name blotted out is the ultimate curse in the ancient Near East, right? To lose one's name uh, is the ultimate punishment. And so whatever the relationship was, historically speaking, between Israel and Amalek, we can trust that it was not a pleasant one, that these are sworn enemies of the ancient Israelites. But what's fascinating about this um, is that we pivot in Exodus 18, to a different people who will soon, sadly, become enemies of Israel, the Midianites, right? If we keep reading, the Midianites become enemies of Israel, like fairly soon. And yet, Moses spent 40 years in the land of Midian as a shepherd. He married a nice Midianite girl, and he seems to have a good rapport with his a Midianite uh, priest's father-in-law, Jethro. And Jethro goes out to meet Moses. We're told that Moses sent away his wife, Zipporah. And this was another interesting conversation we had on Sunday. Uh, did Moses and Zipporah have a good marriage or did he cast her out uh, because he got pressure from his clan uh, to be a little bit more kosher and clean and to stay within the people of Israel for his spouse? Because we know that when he marries the Cushite woman later on, that um, his siblings are going to have some issues with this. So Moses sends her away. Uh, the name of one of her sons is Gershom, uh, which Robert Alter tells us that the best translation of that word, the best meaning is banish. And he notes that it mimics the banishing of foreign wives that we see in Ezra and Nehemiah who whenever the exiles return to the promised land are asked to rededicate themselves to cleanliness and to the temple rituals as they rebuild the temple. Um, and so I guess the question here is, what's actually going on? Why does Moses send his wife Zipporah away? Uh, because we have no reason to think that other women were sent away. Uh, and so I don't think it's too big of a, an inference to think that it has to do with her Midianitness, but that's something I infer it's not stated in the text. And yet Jethro brings them back and Jethro is incredibly gracious to Moses and Moses seems to like Jethro. So he goes out to meet his father-in-law 
and he bows down and he kisses him and they ask how each other are doing. They check in on each other's welfare. Then they go into the tent to have a, you know, kind of man to man, chief to chief, priest to priest conversation. And it's interesting, the respect given to this foreigner, when you think about the larger narrative of scripture. I mean, I think the only priest who is not an Israelite priest who is given such respect in scripture is Melchizedek in the book of Genesis. Um, but Jethro is given a lot of respect. In fact, um, not only does Moses seek Jethro's advice and listen, but listen to what Jethro says in verse 23. If you do this, and so God commands you, all these people will go home in peace. Jethro is claiming to be the mouthpiece of God. And we're told that Moses listens. And again, that Hebrew word listen, it's the same word as both hear and obey. It's what it means to be faithful to Torah. You listen, you hear, you obey. And Moses is obeying this Midianite priest. And that's an interesting thing. As we think about this, this thing happening where Israel's called to be a blessing to all nations, they're also called to be separate, they're leaving Egypt, they're fighting Amalek, and yet, you know, Moses is on the one hand sending his Midianite wife away, but on the other hand, bowing down, kissing, and obeying his Midianite father-in-law. I don't really have much to say other than it speaks to the complications of ancient Israel's relationships with their neighbors and how they balance that task to both be separate and at the same time, a blessing to all the nations. So they come together and they eat bread together, which I think has Eucharistic uh, symbolism tied into it. And Moses's main issue is that he is judging the cases of all the people. And he is really acting as God, in a sense, of just judging people's cases. And um, Jethro basically says, what you're doing is not good. You're going to wear yourself out. Um, the Hebrew means to wither. You're going to wither doing this. A modern translation might be burnout. Uh, and Jethro gives Moses some good advice on how to delegate and to set up uh, men over groups to judge the minor cases. And, um, you know, I think there might be a little lesson here in delegation for all of us. Uh, my guess is that from time to time, you might find yourself withering, worn out, burnout, uh, because you're taking on too much, right? We have that saying in our culture, I'm just taking on too much. Uh, we can take on too much in terms of responsibilities. We can take on too much stress. But I think Jethro's advice is sound and that God created us to live within the finite limits of our fragile creaturely existence. And so if you find yourself metaphorically withering, where might you need to heed Jethro's advice? It's a really good question. Okay, so I'm going to go into conversation here, but just to kind of land this plane, Israelites in the wilderness, they failed the test with bread. God sent manna. So they know God provides miraculously. And rather than asking God to do that for them with respect to water, they just complain to Moses. God sends them the water. 
then they have some interesting relationship with their foreign neighbors, some positive, some negative. Um, and I guess the question is, where do I, we see our life reflected back here? And what are we learning from the Israelites um, that tell us about what the journey to the promised land looks like, what battles we have to face, and what are the complicated realities we have to deal with uh, as we move in that direction together? 